because it's not hard to imagine that if the landing site wasn't correctly prepared, then the scene of one trauma could very easily become a scene of two traumas, and no one wanted that. Well, today, we're going to parachute ourselves into the Sermon on the Mount, looking specifically at Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. And similar to the Metafax story I just told you, if we jump right into the text without some sort of larger context, then things are bound to go wrong. We're likely to cause some, some interpretive dra- trauma, if you will. So I mentioned that we're going to parachute ourselves into Matthew 5. And so now let me sort of change metaphors on you and uh, build upon this parachute analogy. So imagine that we're on a mission to get boots on the ground in some unfamiliar terrain. This unfamiliar terrain, of course, being Matthew 5. And let's pretend that the most effective way to do this is from the air. So imagine further that we're all in the we're all suited up in the jump plane, sitting in the back. Uh, our gear is secure and, and ready, and we're waiting for the go light right before we jump out of the plane. So we're cruising at about 6,000 feet, flying straight and level, approaching our jump zone. And as we wait, we look out the window to get a bird's eye view of the land. Well, that's analogous to our first responsibility with today's text. Our 6,000 foot view is the context of Matthew's gospel. Now, all the gospels share the same purpose, to encourage faith in Christ as both Lord and Savior. But each gospel writer has a nuanced purpose and a distinct approach. And Matthew's purpose is very closely tied to his intended audience. Matthew was a Jewish Christian writing to a predominantly Jewish Christian audience. And there's evidence that Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience throughout the entire gospel, but just a couple of brief examples will serve the point. For example, unlike Luke's gospel, where Luke presents the genealogy of Jesus from Adam to Christ, Matthew presents the genealogy of Jesus from Abraham which would, of course, resonated deeply with his Jewish audience. There are constant references to Jesus as the son of David throughout Matthew's gospel. Again, a distinctly Jewish reference. But the real compelling observation is that throughout his entire work, Matthew constantly cites Jewish customs and various Jewish expressions without ever explaining them, bearing evidence that those to whom he wrote would have understood exactly what Matthew was already talking about. So there's no doubt that Matthew was writing to Jewish believers. Now, Matthew does not explicitly state his purpose for writing, but his purpose is revealed by the literary structure and the key themes of the gospel. Matthew's gospel is organized around five major literary points. So you may want to look down and look at your text briefly. The first four chapters of Matthew are considered a prelude. The last two chapters contain the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and then the Great Commission. And everything in between is really organized around five major literary units. And in each one of these units, the first half consists of narrative, historic narrative, Matthew narrating a story. And the second half of the unit is an extended uh, teaching discourse by our Lord, either a sermon or a series of parables, or 
in some other way addressing some particular audience like the Pharisees. So the overall flow of Matthew's gospel alternates between narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse. So if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, you look through Matthew, you're going to see a bunch of red text followed by black text, followed by red text, followed by black text, back and forth. Now, the ending of each of these five literary units is marked with the phrase, when Jesus had finished saying these things, or something similar. That's Matthew's textual marker when one of these units is closing and another is beginning. So, for example, look down in chapter 7 at verse 28, and you'll see exactly what I'm referring to. Or if you bounce over to the beginning of chapter 11, or at the end of 13. You're going to see something similar to when Jesus had finished these sayings or finished saying these things. So that's how these five units are sort of divided literarily. Now, the most significant theological theme in Matthew's gospel is that Jesus is the Messiah predicted in the Hebrew scriptures. In fact, Matthew alludes or directly cites more than 60 Old Testament references in order to show that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of these passages. Numerous features throughout Matthew's gospel strongly suggest that Matthew intended to highlight important parallels between Jesus and Moses. Now this, you might have heard everything I said so far in the past, but this might be new. But this is important because this is going to have tremendous impact upon the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew went through great pains to show the parallel between Moses and Jesus as the new Moses or the greater Moses. So how do we know that? Well, at various locations within the gospel, Matthew used Greek wording and grammatical construction that exactly, exactly matches specific passages in the Septuagint. That is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Passages that were uniquely associated with Moses. Okay, so what Matthew is doing is he's lifting that Greek grammar and composition out of the Septuagint in areas that are directly describing Moses and using that same grammar and composition to describe Jesus. Okay? Some scholars also argue that Matthew's five-fold literary structure that I just explained was a way of Matthew consciously paralleling the Pentateuch's five-book structure. Okay? And Matthew's presentation of Jesus as the new Moses serves an important theological purpose, identifying Jesus as the savior of God's covenant people in a way that would have absolutely resonated with the audience to whom he, taught, he spoke, to whom he wrote. Okay. So we've arrived at our jump zone, right? And our go light turns from amber to green. And so out the plane we go. And now as we free fall, let's look out over the context of Christ's Sermon on the Mount. So we're going from the context of Matthew's Gospel, and now we're going to look specifically at the Sermon on the Mount, which houses today's passage. Now let's first consider the Sermon from the perspective of Matthew's purpose. The Sermon on the Mount is the first of Matthew's five literary sections comprising his Gospel, and it's a major element of Matthew's presentation of Jesus as the prophet and deliverer prophesied by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. Again, in Deuteronomy 18, Moses wrote that someone greater than I, that God will send someone else 
after me who will speak his words and his commands and, and tell them to you. So he's describing the greater Moses. And so and Matthew, the writer, is going through great lengths to say, this is him. This is he. This is the man. In fact, you remember I said I made I made much a few moments ago of how Matthew mimicked the Greek composition and the Greek grammar and wording of the Septuagint in key places that describe Moses to describe Jesus. That is happening in concentrated form in the Sermon on the Mount. That's why I shared that. Okay? Matthew's description of Jesus ascending a mountain to deliver his authoritative interpretation an application of God's law to his people is reminiscent of Moses' ascent in Sin- of Sinai to receive and deliver God's law in Exodus 19. So what Matthew the writer is informing his audience to is that Jesus Christ's Sermon on the Mount is the New Covenant believer's Exodus 19 moment. It's absolutely undeniable on the basis of how Matthew crafted his wording in his gospel. It's not, it's not a vague illusion. Okay? So that's Matthew's purpose. Now let's shift gears a little bit and consider the sermon from Christ's, per, uh, Christ's purpose. The sermon is a running illustration of the heart attitude and actions that will flow out of a life characterized by an authentic, life-saving encounter with God. As as Jesus speaks to one issue and then the next, he shows that authentic faith originates in the heart and then extends outward indeed. Jesus presents, presents a demanding, somewhat abrasive call to action in which Jesus exhorts his listeners to strive after a prescribed pattern of thought and behavior. But there's also a sense, there's also a sense in which Jesus' demands of perfection are hopelessly beyond reach. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect, says our Lord. The sermon decimates any hope of self-justification and propels us to grace and the power of the gospel, not merely in the context of justification, but in the context of daily sanctification as well. In one sense, the imperative of these three chapters are divisive, separating those who merely mimic a relationship to the king from those who are authentically propelled by the saving, redemptive, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's also a strongly confrontational dimension to the sermon. Throughout the sermon, Jesus sharply attacks the Pharisees' spiritual leadership as inept and hell-bound. Jesus says in chapter 5, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And later he says, you must not be like the hypocrites. Of course, that term hypocrites is, is in a, direct, a direct reference to the Pharisees. Christ's teaching in Matthew 5 through 7, what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, was a radical disruption to the practices and disciplines that the Pharisees had come to prescribe as faithful obedience to God's law. To anyone who is listening, Christ's words demanded a complete overhaul to what holiness and piety looked like under the Pharisaic system. In blunt terms, 
the driving implication of the sermon was the Pharisees are wrong. Don't assume that your religious deeds properly relate you to God. Something different than religious duty is necessary to reach heaven. Jesus wasn't exhorting his listeners from better to best. He was exhorting them from death to life. And Jesus ends his discourse with no less than four warnings for those who would reject the radical all or nothing demands of following his words. Now, there's a key theme that resonates through the entire sermon, and it's this. God is big, I am small, and others are more important than me. Now, of course, there's a lot of detail throughout the whole sermon, but this is a very compact and portable way to keep Jesus' exhortations in constant view as life meets us every day. God is big, I am small, others are more important than me. Almost every exhortation throughout these three chapters, neatly hangs on one of those three hooks. So, let's pull the ripcord and slow our freefall. Okay, we're slowly descending into our passage. And so let's take one last advantage of our altitude and take in the contours and topology of our landing zone, our specific passage. Now, the overall, um, the, the sermon breaks itself can be broken into seven sections. I'm not going to review those now. That's not terribly important for our purposes this afternoon. But our passage is actually located in a third of these seven sections. Uh, and that third section spans Matthew 5, verse 17 through verse 48. So you may want to glance down and eyeball that. That's sort of the, the home base of our passage, if you will. And in this portion of the sermon, Jesus is emphasizing the height of God's law. He shows that not only is the law still relevant, but to be justified on the basis of God's law demands a God-imitating perfection, a perfection that originates in the heart. In fact, that's the summary statement of the third section of of Christ's sermon. And the Lord provides a series of, of six short commentaries, each an exposition of a particular Old Testament command familiar to his Jewish audience. Each of Jesus' six expositions or commentaries are marked by a specific introduction. He says, you have heard that it was said, dot, 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 but I say to you, or something very similar. So again, look down in the chapter five, your your Bible edition, no doubt, probably breaks out the discrete blocks or sections and look at the beginning of each one of those and you'll see that phrasing. And so our passage is the first of these six expositions. The first dealing with anger, the second lust, and then divorce, oaths, retaliation, and then the last dealing with loving your your enemies. So through each of these expositions, Jesus reveals the the principles of God's character that underwrite the letter of the law. Okay, did you feel that thud? Because we just landed. We just hit the ground, right? We're on target and we're on time. So hopefully everyone rolled out of their landing well and no one broke an ankle. Okay, so let's pack up our chutes and let's get to work. And so now it's time to read our passage. Okay, Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, 
you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, I want to bring your attention to Jesus' basic framework, okay? because this basic framework applies through, through all six of his commentaries in this section. He, his basic formula is, is as follows. He cites an Old Testament command, and so in our case, that's verse 21. He then extends that command, or he tightens it, demonstrating his authority, For us, that's verse 22. And then he provides a particular application. In our case, he provides two, and that spans from verse 23 to verse 26. So let's look at this a little more closely. First, Jesus cites an Old Testament command, verse 21, and he cites two areas of the law. He begins by citing the sixth commandment directly. You shall not murder. Exodus 20, 13 and repeated again in Deuteronomy 5.17. And then he says, whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now here the Lord is actually citing various Old Testament references. For example, in Exodus 21.12 we read, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Or in Leviticus 24.17, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Or in Numbers 35, If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. And there are other such references. And then in verse 22, Jesus describes three sinful conditions and their consequences. So let's look at the look at the first. He says, he says, everyone, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, the word translated judgment, or depending on your version, it might read court, is the Greek word krisis. And in the context of Old Testament law, the word likely referred to formal judges and courts that we read about uh, when they were established in Deuteronomy 16, Deuteronomy 16, 18 specific. We read, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. Now, that's the Old Testament context, but in Jesus' day, the term was no doubt connected to the idea of a system of Jewish courts distributed throughout the region of Palestine, each consisting of a tribunal of seven judges. So that's his first, that's his first uh, statement, his first sinful condition. And then he says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Now, two terms are important in this statement. The first term is the verb insults. Now, the ESV takes a fairly dynamic approach to translating this verse. And the word underlying the translation insults 
is the Greek term of contempt, raka. And so a more literal translation is, whoever says to his brother, raka. In fact, that's how the NIV and the KJV and the NKJV translate that. And the word is Aramaic in origin and was a common form of harsh criticism or even abusive slander in first century Palestine. The term wasn't used lightly. It was a term of utter contempt. The charge carried the idea of being so utterly stupid and moronic as to be worthless, good for nothing. A person accused of being Araka was unfit for even the most basic task. And so the sin our Lord is describing is the kind of abusive attitude toward one another that belittles the other person's dignity and worth. It's an attitude that sees significance in yourself and irrelevance in others, refusing to think of and treat others as image bearers of the king. Now, the second term is the noun counsel. And the word translated counsel is the word sunedrion. And in its broadest use, the word refers to any deliberating assembly. However, Jesus' listeners would have almost certainly connected the word to the 71-member Sanhedrin council located in Jerusalem. In the days of Christ and the apostles, the Sanhedrin was the highest court among the Jews. It was superior to the district courts we just spoke of a few moments ago, the Croesus. In fact, this was the council that condemned Jesus to death. This was the same council that authorized, at that time, Saul to go to Damascus with letters of approval to arrest believing Jews. Its orders were regarded as binding throughout the entire dominion of Orthodox Judaism and was effectively the center of Jewish government, at least to the degree that Rome permitted. That was Jesus' second second sinful condition, and that now brings us to the third, where he says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, in our culture, we use the word fool differently than the Jewish mindset of the first century. So the cruel and bitter nature of this, exp- of this expression, it's, it's not very apparent to us. The mindset of first century Judaism was steeped, was steeped in the worldview of Old Testament wisdom literature. Uh, in, in, the old, in Old Testament wisdom, the fool is contrasted with the wise. And the meaning of these terms have nothing to do with mental ability, but rather in Old Testament wisdom, the wise man is the one who feared God and obeyed his law. The wise man recognized that this fallen world was still ruled by a sovereign God. They recognized the limits of human wisdom and they trusted God. The foolish man, on the other hand, rejected God's authority and looked upon God with contempt. Instead of fearing God and obeying him, the fool chose to live life by his own rules. So in Jesus' statement, the charge you fool is an indictment of a person's spiritual condition. Whereas the term raka insulted a person's mental worth, to call someone a fool in the context of a first century Jewish mindset was to assault their moral, ethical, and spiritual character. It was equivalent to charging them with the arrogance, 
the immorality and the licentiousness of the prodigal son. It was ultimately an expression that indicted a person as being fit for hell. It's similar to the literal meaning of our contemporary expression when we call upon God to damn someone. And so the sin that our Lord is describing is a hateful, malicious contempt for another. Now the word translated translated hell is the Greek word a Gehenna. And the word refers to the valley of Gehenom, which was outside of Jerusalem. You may remember, I think last summer we talked about this briefly, and we explained that Gehenom in ancient times is where Israel gathered to offer their infants as burnt sacrifices to the Canaanite god Molech. But by Jesus' time, the area had become a vile, filthy area where the city of Jerusalem disposed of all of their waste and refuse. But our contemporary idea of a landfill or trash dump is far too lightweight to grasp what's going on here. It was certainly that, but more. It was a place where the dead bodies of animals and the dead bodies of criminals and other people who died without any family claim, all, all kinds of organic filth and waste were all uh, cast and consumed by fires that were kept continually burning. So, I mean, you just imagine the sight and the smell. And so thus the imagery of Gehenna became symbolic of the place of everlasting torment and eternal destruction. It was the closest thing in the mindset of this culture where utter and complete destruction could be visualized by something they could see. And so oftentimes our, our, our Lord referred to Gehenna as this place of eternal torment. Now, with all that said, before we proceed to our Lord's applications, we need to pause and we need to draw out a couple of important observations. And the first thing I want you to notice is that the Lord is describing three heart attitudes. He talks about anger. He talks about uh, raka, an abusive attitude belittling another person's dignity or worth. He called out, you fool, a self-righteous, malicious contempt for another. That's the first observation. The second observation is that there's an escalating severity to the condemnation attached to each infraction. Anger demands judgment, a reference to the local courts, those charged with administering righteous judgment against the unjust. The charge of Raqqa demands the judgment of the council. Again, a likely reference to the Sanhedrin. The Jews' supreme court who, apart from Rome's intervention, held the power of life and death. A tribunal whose judgment was the final earthly word on any matter. No appeal. The charge, you fool, demanded the judgment of hell. A picture of divine, eternal judgment. And so hopefully you can see the the escalating nature of consequence that our Lord was attaching to these three attitudes. That's the second observation. The third observation, and this is important. In fact, if we miss this, I think we miss the whole import of Christ's uh, uh, commentary here. Jesus connects his list to the severity of murder 
at the beginning, not the end. Now, let me explain this. Since murder is without doubt a serious transgression against God's law, we would expect Jesus' list of escalating severity to conclude with the severity of murder. I mean, after all, what can be worse than murder? Okay? In other words, we would expect Jesus' third most severe transgression and judgment, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire, we would have expected that to correspond to the severity and judgment of murder. But is that what's going on? Look closely again at the text. This is not what Jesus did. Jesus anchors his list, or he calibrates his list, to the sin of murder at the front of the list, not the end. Compare the condemnation Jesus assigned to the sin of anger, the beginning of his list, to the condemnation he assigned to murder at the end of verse 21, just before. And you're going to see the repetition of identical Greek wording. He's going to talk about them being liable to judgment. Croesus. Look at the end of verse 21. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Verse 22. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. There you go. So he's calibrating the severity of his list equating it or drawing out the correspondence to the severity of murder at the beginning of his list, not escalating to it. You guys tracking with me? Okay, now we'll see why this is important in a few seconds. All right? So he, he, he connects the severity of his list to murder at the beginning, not the end, and then simply escalates from there onward. Okay, he doesn't end at murder. He begins with murder by virtue of of the identical consequences he establishes between the guilt of murder and the guilt of anger. Okay? Now that's a big deal. That's a big deal. So let's let's draw out a couple of let's make some conclusions over some of these observations, right? <clears throat> the two observations I just described, the escalating nature of the list and the list's connection to murder at the beginning of the list rather than the end strongly suggest that Jesus was not cataloging three different categories of sin, but describing the progressive nature of one thing that begins as anger. See, by associating anger and murder with the same severity of judgment, Jesus is essentially saying that anger and murder are of the same visceral heart stuff. The wickedness of heart that's responsible for the act of murder is the same wickedness of heart that gives birth to anger. Now, that's hard for us to accept, right? That's hard for us to accept. And I'm sure it must have been as shocking to the ears of our Lord's listeners as it is to our ears, right? Now, let's, let's be honest. What's our first reaction to what I just said? I think our first reaction is to sort of raise our hand and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. We need to affirm that not all anger is sinful. I mean, be honest, isn't that the first place your mind went to? Well, wait a minute. Not all anger is sinful. Jesus demonstrated anger. And don't many Old Testament passages speak of the anger of the Lord? Deuteronomy 6.15. In fact, doesn't Ephesians 4.26 command, be angry and do not sin? So yes, there is a type 
of anger that's not intrinsically evil. But on the flip side, let's not be too quick to flatter ourselves. Let's be quick to consider that the anger of Ephesians might very well be the the exception in our repertoire of passionate, dissatisfying responses, not the typical or the usual one. He gets it. Right? Sometimes... Sometimes with things that grow early in the growth cycle, isn't it hard to tell things apart that are by nature different? So, for example, those of you who garden, as seedlings, don't a lot of different plants actually look similar, at least to the untrained eye, in their seedling state? So, in a similar kind of way, Jesus is saying that there's something that starts out as anger... But if left to fester, will reveal the true form of its murderous nature as this sin takes root and grows. I think our Lord is revealing the ease by which the sin of murder and hate takes up occupancy in our heart, undetected and unchallenged, but whose Festering presence is increasingly evident by the advancing harshness of our attitude toward and treatment of one another. In the very next illustration in our Lord's Sermon, uh, the Lord explains that a person is already guilty of adultery when they've looked upon another with impure motives. Now, those two are challenging words, um, but we tend to readily accept that. We accept that concept. Well, Jesus' words in our current passage are similar, but they're harder to accept. But what our Lord is telling us, is it is possible to be guilty of murder long before committing the physical, physical act or even without committing the physical act. Sin is committed in the heart long before it breaks out in our actions. Consider for a moment Cain. Cain defied God's terms of sacrifice, choosing to live by his own rules, not God's. He offered sacrifice from the first fruits of the ground rather than the blood of the flock. God rejected Cain's sacrifice, but he rejoiced in Abel's. And we don't know exactly what Cain thought, But in Genesis 4, we do read that Cain was, quote, very angry. It's not unreasonable to think that Cain resented God's judgment. And Abel was a constant reminder to Cain of his sin sin against God. Abel was a constant reminder of God's, uh, I'm sorry, Abel was a constant reminder to Cain of Cain's displeasure to his Lord. And Abel was now a threat to Cain's high opinion of himself. And so the threat must be removed. The threat must come off the grid. And so Cain murdered his brother. If we fail to confront unrighteous anger as murder in embryo, and we make peace with this sin and its progressive advance, then brothers and sisters, we we are... We are heart brothers with Cain. 
Our Lord's point is this. Anger, a belittling rejection of another's worth, and a hateful, malicious contempt for one another. All these things, they all hail from the same heart wickedness that gives rise to murder. And God will hold us culpable to these things. Now, don't be so quick to sit back and say, yes, 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 I get it. But I'm not really guilty of murder. I mean, because, in fact, I have not actually murdered anyone. Say, well, you're tipping your hat to the persuasion that Jesus was merely speaking in hyperbole to emphasize a point. But the fact is, there's absolutely no evidence in this text that Jesus was using any form of exaggeration to make his point clear. And see, the problem here is that we are thinking in strictly human terms. In one sense, you are correct. You are correct. God has ordained human courts to judge according to a man's actions. And presuming you haven't actually literally murdered anyone, no human court can justly condemn you for murder. But see, here's the thing. God sees into the heart. And so God can judge according to the true nature of our being long before the nature of that being works itself out in actions, even if they never do. I think God's warning to Cain is Christ's warning to us. In Genesis 4, 7, we hear of God speaking to Cain. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. I want to challenge you this morning to look carefully at your own hearts. Are are you entangled by anger, by a haughty disgust, or a malicious contempt for another? And if you don't discover any situation in which these things have broken out in any overt treatment of another, that's good. I'm, I'm glad. But I'm not done pressing you. Because I want to challenge you and ask that even if such things have not made themselves, made their presence known in any sort of overt actions, have you allowed sin to take up residency residency in your heart? A a kind of ever-present, low-grade fever of anger, of resentment, of bitterness towards someone or another, of haughtiness, of disgust, of malice and hate. See, sometimes we can be disciplined enough to turn down the heat and just persist this thing as some sort of ongoing, ever-present, low-grade fever that we just continue to nurse through all or a large season of our life. But don't flatter yourself. Just because you've kept that under covers and maybe haven't permitted it to, to establish its presence, presence by way of some sort of tangible act, God sees the nature of our being, and he knows the mechanisms of our hearts. And so beware, and so think, and think hard, and ask the Lord to reveal whether or not we've been doing that. Now, I think a lot of what I just said, the applications are self-evident, but the beauty of today's text is that applications are already there. In verses 23 through 26, the Lord describes two scenarios that serve as applications of the weighty truth he just proclaimed. And so let me give you these two applications up front, and then we'll very quickly uh, look at the text. The first one I would sort of paraphrase as this. Recognize the ease 
Recognize the ease with which the wickedness of our hearts so easily break out against each other. And then be diligent to reconcile with those we've mistreated as a matter of first importance. Okay, urgency being the key. Second application. In moments of conflict, be quick. Be quick to discern our guilt and submit to our accuser before justice prevails against us. So let's look at these scenarios separately. In verses 23 and 24, we see the Lord's first scenario. He says, So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In both instances, the individual described in the text is guilty of some sort of unspecified offense toward another. But in this first scenario, I want you to notice that the individual is disrupted by conscience, right? While offering his gift at the altar, he remembered that he had acted out against his brother. And our Lord's direction was clear. Go and restore the relationship with your brother before offering your gift to God. And the implication to this, of this, is that we cannot enjoy the privilege and satisfaction of our union with God if our relationships with one another are strained by sinful deceits, by the sinful deceits of our hearts. Again, recognize the ease with which the wickedness of our hearts so easily breaks out against each other. And then be diligent to reconcile with those we've mistreated and to do so as a matter of first importance. That was the first scenario. Let's look at the second. Verses 25 and 26. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. In this second scenario, we have to remember that Jesus is speaking into the circumstances of someone whose heart is under the influence of wickedness described in verses 21 and 22. Because if we don't recognize that, it might look like Jesus is advocating the suspension of justice, which he is not. Okay? Now, as I've alluded to a few minutes ago, the emphasis of both of these scenarios is urgency. But in this second scenario, the tone of urgency is set against the imminent condemnation of the one who sees their position wrongly. In this scenario, the individual is, subject, is the subject of a formal charge brought forward by the offended party. So perhaps Jesus was thinking or was describing the further deterioration of the first scenario in which the individual ignored his conscience and failed to properly deal with the offense as Jesus directed. Or maybe the second illustration is completely unrelated to the first. And the individual in the second illustration was simply blind to their offense. But in either case, Jesus' direction is clear. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. Okay? In moments of conflict, be quick to discern our guilt and submit to our accuser before justice prevails against us. Jesus is describing a conflict in which both parties are entrenched in their side of the argument. 
each convinced that their position is the correct one. And Jesus' words are hard. Jesus demands that we humble ourselves in light of our heart's propensity for evil. He demands that we doubt the integrity of our motives. He demands that we examine ourselves suspicious of our heart's deceits. And he demands that we recognize when murderous contempt in any degree has taken up residency in our heart, repent of it, and then vanquish it. That's his demand. Now look again at our text as a whole. In addition to the escalation of our Lord's charges, notice the warning attached to our Lord's second application in verse 26. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The basic sentiment of our Lord is this. If you harbor malice and contempt toward one another, destroying one another in your own hearts, then I will destroy you. I will destroy you. Now, in one sense, Jesus' words to repent of our wickedness and love one another in a way that echoes God's nature and his claim on our lives, this is not completely new. This is not the first time Jesus' listeners would have heard this. In fact, the sentiment Jesus challenges us with in our current text was already essentially expressed as early as Leviticus. Consider Leviticus 19, 17 through 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your brother, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Can you see the parallel? Can you see the parallel to today's text? Or more importantly, can you see Jesus's parallel to this Old Testament teaching? The Sermon on the Mount is not the final word on this topic. In fact, it's foundational to the apostles' teaching. It's almost certain John had these exact words of our Lord in mind in his first epistle, where he clarified that our obedience to Jesus' demand to truly love one another from the heart is evidence of the Spirit's supernatural work in us. In 1 John 3, John wrote, He said, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Now listen to this. Everyone who hates his brother is what? A murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Again, can you see the parallels to Christ's teaching? Is John writing with hyperbole? No. No, I don't think so. Not at all. One of the reasons I chose this text today is because Paul's teaching to the church at Corinth echoes these truths. There's stains all over Paul's letter to so many of the truths our Lord brought out in the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's undeniable that Paul was aware of the words spoken by our Lord and the teaching of our Lord during his earthly ministry. Do you remember, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 6? 
That is Paul's response to the Corinthians' lawsuits against one another. And do you remember his exhortation? In 1 Corinthians 6, 7, Paul said, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Well, what do you think is informing Paul's mind on this topic? It's quite possible that Jesus' words in Matthew 5, our passage in particular, and frankly, a passage soon to come, Jesus' teaching on retaliation, just a few verses ahead of today's passage, that those things together is precisely what Paul was thinking about when he wrote this to the Corinthians. Another possible allusion uh, to Jesus' teaching is Paul's statement late in chapter 3. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, Paul wrote, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Once again, an implication from today's text, if you harbor malice and contempt toward one another, destroying one another in your own hearts, then I will destroy you, says the Lord. And in the coming weeks, Paul will continue to echo the sentiments of our Lord expressed throughout the Sermon on the Mount as Paul addresses the issue of Christian liberty in chapters 8 through 10. So let me take a few moments and summarize sort of some key truths and then draw uh, summarize some key truths and then some final closing thoughts. There's at least three truths I want to press into your mind and heart uh, this afternoon. The first is this. There is a certain ease by which the sin of murder and hate takes up occupancy in our heart, undetected and unchallenged. That's what makes it so dangerous but whose festering presence is increasingly evident. How's it become evident? By the advancing harshness of our attitude toward and our treatment of one another. That's the first point. Second point, anger, a belittling rejection of another's worth, and a hateful, malicious contempt for one another. All these things, they all hail from the same heart wickedness that gives rise to murder. And God will hold us culpable for all these things as murderers. As murderers. Third, which I've spoken a couple of times already, and that is, I believe, on the basis of our Lord's second application, the sentiment of our Lord is this. If, if you harbor malice and contempt toward one another, I should add, unapologetically, unrepentfully, destroying one another in your own hearts, then know this for sure, that I will destroy you. They're heavy words. Our Lord himself directly gave us two applications, which I want to leave you with. The first, the two are this. First, recognize the ease with which the wickedness of our hearts so easily breaks out against each other. And be diligent to reconcile with those we've mistreated and to do so as a matter of first importance. Urgency is the key. And secondly, in moments of conflict, be quick to discern our guilt and submit to our accuser before justice prevails against us. Now to close, I, just, I feel compelled to share these two closing thoughts. We need to take our Lord's words very, very seriously. 
We need to strive after godliness. We must be fighting to slay sin in our lives. John Owen said, be killing sin or it will kill you. But also remember that the gospel that saves is the very same power that sanctifies. So it's not about bunkering down and merely trying harder in our own strength. Our faith is not a faith of self-dependence. The whole point of Jesus' sermon as he prevents these lofty demands is not that we could ever achieve these on our own, but this is what the work of God's Spirit in the lives of his redeemed will produce. It's not about self-dependence. It's about staining your soul with the wonder of the cross. It's about meditating upon the gospel daily. Immerse yourself in the word that you would come face to face with the personhood of God himself through such gospel truths as redemption, atonement, propitiation, imputation, adoption. I'm just not rattling those things off to sound lofty. Those, those mean something. Those are rich in expressing who God is and what he has done and in capturing the unbelievability of the mighty saving deeds our Lord has performed. The more we set our affections upon the supreme worth of Jesus Christ and the wonder of the gospel, the more our will and resolve is propelled to obedience. The more we turn from our preoccupation with self, loving others in imitation of the love that first loved us. The more we set our affections upon the supreme worth of Jesus Christ and the wonder of the gospel, the more we experience the power of the gospel in our own lives, slaying our own disbelief. The more we set our affections upon the supreme worth of Jesus Christ and the wonder of the gospel, the more we possess a passion to see ourselves as fools for Christ's sake, stewarding our lives as something to be spent for the sake of Christ's glory and worth. Strive after godliness through the power of the gospel. Lord, I, I just believe we need to own these words. Lord, we need you. We, we, are, we are helpless and hopeless in our own devices. Sin is too big for us. Lord, we need your saving work. We need the protective work of your word working in our lives. But we need to put ourselves in the way of that. And so, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pursue you as we pursue your word. Teach us to, to co-labor with one another in constructive and edifying ways. And as need be, Lord, reconcile us to one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So now we're going to transition our service to communion, and this is actually rather apropos. It's a perfect time to consider what we've just spent the last 45 minutes talking about. It's so easy to take for granted the mechanics of communion, taking the elements, and yet it's, it's a distinct gift. It's, it's a it's an ordinance that the Lord himself uh, bequeathed to the church. 
And there are many aspects to communion, not the least of which is this idea that in the first century mindset, when you shared a meal, you were expressing the, the peace and the harmony and the reconciliation that now existed between, that exists between two parties. But even more so, what I want to emphasize this morning is the idea of, of examination. Given what we just spoke about, this is an excellent time to inspect your heart. Where are we harboring maybe overt acts of what I'll call murderous hate uh, and not to sound dramatic or overreactive, but let's call a spade a spade. Poison is poison. And where are we harboring such ill will towards another? Maybe we're so crafty enough that we simply hold this thing at bay as as simply a low-grade fever that we think is uh, maybe we don't even recognize. We've grown inoculated against even discerning its presence. And we need the power of God to open up our eyes to what we must see. And so use this time as we prepare for communion to examine your hearts. And not just today, but to do so continually, asking the Lord to, to awaken us to the privilege of being his covenant people and then to, in his strength, rise up to illustrate before all heavenly and earthly hosts watching our lives that our Lord is worthful, that our Lord is grand. And he has done wonderful things through his mighty saving deeds. And our life is now about proclaiming and radiating that reality. So the... the, um, Worship team can now come forward, please.